welcome back to GCF. Uh, I love how this side is the side that people like, and this side is apparently the outcast side. Um, so maybe there'll be reconciliation tonight. Johnny joined, so that's good. All right. Um, so I remember in my early uh, college years, and I've gone on like three or four kind of big vacations, but this one was probably the biggest. And my whole mom's side of my family, which is the Bowlers, the Malachies, the Valines. Um, we all went, not that that's relevant to anybody, but um, we all went down to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. Has anyone been there before? Puerto Vallarta? Um, no. Uh, anyway, it's, it's wonderful. It's in Mexico. It's, it's on the coast. There's beaches and water, and it's warm. And we stayed in this uh, really cool uh, house. It was like two stories. It had six rooms. We had our own private pool and volleyball net. Um, and there's just like built for outdoor entertainment. And, and we were within walking distance of what's called Fifth Avenue. And Fifth Avenue um, in Puerto Vallarta is uh, this street that's got all sorts of fancy shops and restaurants and attractions. Um, and it's really nice. Uh, they're high quality. The streets are clean. There's actually like armed security guards just like walking around. I felt kind of intimidated at first, but I'm like, hey, I feel really safe here. Um, and there's, there's lights and there's sounds and there's energy. And so at night we'd go there and we'd eat and we'd hang out and we'd hear bands play and we'd have um, a really good time. But I remember one morning, um, I went for a walk downtown with just my parents and, and we walked the whole of Fifth Avenue and then we kind of got to the end of it and we just kept walking. And you weren't more than two or three blocks away from this where all of the ritz and the glamour of Fifth Avenue, as it was promoted, began to fade. And, and I, I kind of stopped and we looked back and we were just standing in the middle of this like poverty-stricken neighborhood where all of a sudden the, the money and the, the establishedness of Fifth Street fade away and there are people living under cardboard boxes. Uh, and it felt weird because here we had like the intersection of two worlds where here we have people fighting for survival and yet a mile away, I'm living in this two-story house with all of the amenities. And in between is this stretch um, where there is money and there is food and there are activities. There's one of glamour and there's one of survival. And I remember feeling guilty as I, as I looked at these people because here I am with more than they will ever have but incapable of helping them. And so it kind of like, it, in one sense, I feel guilty because I'm like, here I am on vacation in a place where this exists. And there was nothing I could do for them. And you can only imagine the experience Christ had of living in heaven in perfect triune fellowship with God. And we all say, oh man, that would be heaven. But Jesus from the real, actual heaven in perfection with God the Father, and he came to our world. He came into our brokenness and our mess and our sickness and our wars and our crises and he lived here. And he came down into it. But unlike me, in my experience with Mexico, Jesus didn't come and just feel sorry for people. Jesus came and he labored for people. Jesus came and he served. Jesus came and he didn't simply observe, but he came to make things better. And Jesus said that himself in Matthew 20, verses 28, where he says this, even as the Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite name for himself, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give him his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus didn't come to be a tourist. Jesus didn't come to be gawked at. Jesus came to do something. Jesus came to help people. 
And tonight, we're going through the book of Mark as we've been going through all summer, or all school year. We're not to summer yet. It was 50 degrees today. It was like summer. Um, and Mark is just a story of Jesus and what he did and who he is and what he accomplished. And tonight, we're going to see that Jesus is compassionate to the oppressed and faithless by calling them to the cross. So we're going to see Jesus' compassion, but we're also going to see the means of his compassion as well. So let's pray. And if you want to turn me down just a little bit, Austin. Lord, we do come before you, um, and we do need words to say. We do need uh, the Holy Spirit to grant us worship and discernment as we hear your word preached, Lord. I pray for me that you give me um, clarity and discernment and wisdom. Um, we thank you that your Bible is good for us, that, that as, as the author of Hebrews says, it's alive and active, and that the Bible itself wants to interact with us. And so we pray that it does that tonight, Lord. Um, that it convicts us, that it stirs us, that it leads us to repentance and worship. We pray for our time of worship, following, and fellowship later this evening. God, may it be blessed by you. May we make relationships uh, that will last eternally as we discuss your gospel and celebrate um, the joy of community. We pray this in your name. Amen. So for those of us who were with us two weeks ago, um, we read about the transfiguration of Jesus. And basically what happened is Jesus took like his core three, um, Peter, James, and John, and he went up on top of a mountain. And there on top of a mountain, um, they got, saw a glimpse of something that no one will ever see this side of death. They saw Jesus fully glorified in radiant light in all of his splendor with Moses and Elijah. And for the first time in their ministry, rather than hearing the gospel from Jesus, hearing Jesus proclaim the kingdom, or seeing Jesus perform miracles which represented inbreakings of the kingdom, they saw the kingdom with their own two eyes. They saw the perfection of God and the rule of God and the glory of God in the exalted person of Jesus. They saw a place where there was no more sin and there was no disease and sickness and war. They saw life as it ought to be on this mountain. This glorious life-transforming event, they witnessed it with their own eyes. And you could just imagine um, what this would be like, and, and I, I heard this illustration once. Imagine you're in a cartoon world where everything's two-dimensional. Then all of a sudden, somebody reaches their hand down in like three dimensions. You see it for a minute, and then it goes away. And you, you don't even have the language to describe this third dimension you just saw. You can just be like, there's something different that's coming. There's something entirely different that we, in our current humanity, in our limits, we can't understand. And so the disciples, Peter, James, and John, have witnessed this experience, and they're walking down the mountain, and Jesus starts talking about their death. And so they, they have this picture of glory that they saw, but they're hearing this, this word of Jesus saying he's going to be killed. And they're wrestling with, how does this glory match up with what they heard? And they're going down the mountain, and immediately they're presented with contrast. We see that contrast starting in Mark 9, verse 14 through 19. And when they came to the disciples, so that's Peter, James, John, and Jesus coming to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed. And they ran to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing with them about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I've brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. 
And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So they come from an experience of God's full glory, and they walk into doubt, controversy, argument, sickness, evil, and limitations. Immediately they're confronted with that. And I think it, it, it couldn't be more clear for Peter, James, and John, they're not on the mountain anymore. <laughs> this isn't the world they just saw. And life on this world in this current place is exactly how God has desired it to be in this current place, but it's not what God is desiring it to be. And it's not what it will be. Our future reality inside the kingdom of God is not like this world. It's completely different. And for the disciples, this point is extremely clear. But now they're confronted with something different. Because they just saw, again, um, imagine the most majestic thing you've ever seen. Pump it full of steroids and then put it in your imagination. Let it ferment for a week. That's what they saw on the mountain. And now Jesus is here, and now there's this tension where, what does that Jesus, what does he mean for this earth? What does that Jesus mean in this earth? What does Jesus mean in this mess? You see, each and every one of you has to answer this question. There's not many people who hate Jesus. There are people who hate what Jesus stands for. They hate the idea of sin and repentance but most people like Jesus. Jesus is a good guy. We kind of don't like God. He's seen as angry and, and wrathful, so we, we can discard God. But people like Jesus. But the real Jesus and a right view of that Jesus isn't just a warm, fuzzy feeling that makes you feel like you're not going to go to hell. It's not just this idea that I've been called to a higher moral quality of life. It's not this thing that Jesus is a friend and I, when, I, when I'm sad, I can go and he could be my, my snuggle buddy and I just recharge and get my emotions picked up by Jesus. You see, the real Jesus does work here. Does your view of Jesus match up to that? Or is your view of Jesus in a box, unbiblical, limited, and not relevant to this current day? But one day, one day, like I, I always sing... Uh, I love kind of the old cheesy Baptist songs, and I call them the get me out of here songs, where it's like, man, just get us out of here. And in one sense, we want that. But in one sense, Jesus is laboring here. Jesus is working here in this sorrow and in this controversy and in this suffering. Does your view of Jesus do work? Is he relevant here in this world? Does he work in the here and in the now? Because as we're about to see, the real Jesus does that. The real Jesus, while he is wonderfully and wholly other and magnificent beyond imagination, he has transcended and come to earth to do real work, which is still happening. And so again, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see Christ, and this is the first part. We're going to see Christ has compassion on the oppressed and the faithless. So we're taking that thing, we're splitting it in two. Um, Christ has compassion on the oppressed and the faithless. Now, this is one of the most compelling stories in Mark um, when I read it. And, and so rather than picking it apart, kind of like we do, we look at a chunk 
and then we talk about it, and we look at a chunk, and then we talk about it. I want to read this whole story as a whole first, and then I want to come back, um, and then we'll look at the two perspectives which are inside of this. And so I want to start in verse 17. And someone from the crowd answered him, actually backing up even more. I like how Jesus came down and they're arguing, and Jesus says, hey, what are you arguing about? And no one argues anymore. When Jesus is in the midst, it's like the arguments are secondary to Jesus. And so they stop arguing, and this father cries out. He says, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So ask your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. And he said to them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? He said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So great story. Um, And inside the story, there are two perspectives. This perspectives. The first one we want to look at is the perspective of the boy, okay? This boy who's possessed by an unclean spirit. And this isn't the first time we've ran into demons in the book of Mark. Back in Mark 5, we saw a man who was possessed. They said he lived among the rocks, and he would torment this village, and he would scream out, and he would the, the demon would take uh, jagged rocks and cut the man with it so that this man would just be crying in this rock. It was a terrifying fright for everybody in the surrounding community. And he was so strong that the, the, the people in the community had tried to bind, bind him with chains, and he burst the chains. No one could handle this demon. But Jesus went up to that guy with this demon, and he's like, demon, you need to go. And the demon left. The demon yielded to Christ's power. And here in Mark 9, we hear another story, the story of a boy who's been possessed since he was a child. And just like the instance in Mark chapter 5, the demon was hostile towards the boy. You see, this just goes to prove that Satan never has your best interests in mind. You hear kind of these fables of like rock stars selling their souls to the devil to write good rock music, and it becomes kind of this funny thing that we make fun of. But Satan isn't concerned with your well-being. The Bible says he's an enemy, your devil, prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. His lies, his deception, his false promises, his poison coated with sugar, he desires your destruction, not your joy. Satan does not have your best interests in mind. The promises of sin, as flashy and attractive as they may seem, are empty and dangerous. 
There is no good that comes from sin. And, and, and we don't know that, I mean, this boy's been possessed from a child, so it's not that he's done some grievous sin that he's possessed. It's just we meet a boy who's possessed. And, and not only is he possessed, but he's enslaved. He's destined to a life of pain, torture, agony, separation, round-the-clock care, and his father couldn't fix him. The disciples of Jesus, who have been able to cast out demons in this book, they can't fix him. Only Jesus could fix this boy. And he did. You see, the salvation of this boy goes to show that no one has power like Jesus has power. No on earth, no dominion, no man, no entity, no corporation, no mystical realm has the power that Jesus has. And in Mark 3, Jesus calls Satan the strong man. But then he goes on to say this, Mark 3, 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And what Mark is showing, and kind of the three, in Mark, the three people groups who are always surrounding Jesus' ministry are the Pharisees, the crowds, and the demons. And what Mark is showing by Jesus' interaction with the demons is that Jesus has bound the strong man. And he's going to rob Satan blind. Satan and his power hold no sway over the believer. And you see this also in the permanence that Jesus gives to this. Jesus not only casts the demon out, Jesus has ultimate authority over this demon. It's not that this boy now gets this little relic that he can pray to and this demon doesn't come back. Or if he's good, the demon won't come back. Do you see what Jesus said? In 9.25, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. That's because the presence of Christ and the presence of Satan are mutually exclusive. The two can't occupy the same space. For someone who has been saved by Christ, there is no influence, there is no power, there is no room in your heart for the things of the devil because Jesus has taken up home in your heart. Because Jesus is more powerful, because Jesus is stronger, because Jesus has greater authority, because Jesus is God and everything else is lesser to him. And I love this story because here we have this boy who is oppressed beyond compare. And Jesus comes, he doesn't ask questions, he doesn't ask why, he doesn't join the debate of the disciples. He sees him, he frees him, he heals him, he saves him because that's what Jesus came to do. He came to those who were spiritually oppressed to bring freedom and life and deliverance. Jesus frees the oppressed. Jesus is compassionate and has an interest in the oppressed. The second perspective of this story is easily my favorite, and that's the perspective of the father. Um, and actually in this story, the boy's not even the main character. The dad is. And maybe that's me reading myself into this text and taking arrogance in it. Um, but but I, I, honestly, as I read this story, I was just crushed with the weight this father was carrying. Because uh, by God's grace, I have two kids, um, and they're wonderful, three kids, um, and yeah, and they're wonderfully healthy. Um, but I've known parents who've had kids who have extreme mental handicaps where they can't talk, they can't move, they can't, they can barely take care of themselves and eat. And I've seen those parents selflessly serve 
and love like Christ humbled himself and served in love. And what a great portrait of the gospel for the entire world to see that care happening. I see them dealing with grace with these individuals in their lack, stooping to their level to care for them. But I've also heard their desire. I've heard their prayers that my child would be healed, that I wouldn't have to worry that they could do what other kids could do. And my heart breaks for them. And, and, and seeing how my heart, and knowing how my heart has responded to those, I can't imagine the pain and distress of this father. Because handicaps and, and limitations we have in this sinful world that just happens from bodies that are falling apart is different than what this is. This is an oppression on an individual by the hand of Satan himself. You see, a father who has seen his son since a child tortured by an evil spirit, writhing in pain, gnashing his teeth, foaming at his mouth. And then this, uh, we have a, my parents have a cabin and going to, uh, they have a dock and I'm terrified when my son's on the dock that he's going to be like looking over and falling. I can't imagine knowing that there's an evil spirit inside my son that wants to drown him. Throwing him into the fire trying to destroy him, hearing his screams and his cries and not being able to do anything about it. I remember it was, it was roughly two years ago. Owen was maybe six months old. Um, and it was after GCF and I get a call from Sarah. Owen had had a really bad cold. Then I got a call from Sarah and she's sobbing on the other end of the phone. She's, and I get home and she's in the bathroom with Owen and she has the, the shower turned up all the way for the steam. And because he is so full of phlegm, he was having trouble breathing. And just in that instance, Sarah was brought to tears and I was just like, what do I do? That was for 15 minutes of my life. Can you imagine? And we see in the book of Luke, this is the man's only son. Your only son, every minute of every day, fearing for his health, fearing for his life, and hearing his cries of terror and being unable to do anything. And I read that and I'm just like, I'm empathizing with this. I can only imagine that desperation. But imagine the glimmer of hope when he hears of this man wandering the countryside who takes care of this stuff. And he comes to see him He's not there. He's up on a mountain. But then his disciples are there. Like, you know, we, Jesus has given us some ability to do this. And so if you give them to the remaining nine disciples, and they lay hands on him, and they pray for him, and they rebuke the demon, and nothing happens. You can just see that silliness of hope going away. Why would this be any different? Why would this change it? But then Jesus comes. And not only does Jesus come, but it's his desire to see the boy. It's his desire to have the boy brought to him. And you can imagine the nervous anticipation as you bring your only son to this stranger. And then again, a gut bump as when the spirit sees Jesus, he collapses on the ground and will not let the boy get there and rolls and writhes and screams and foams at the mouth. And Jesus, kind of like a doctor, he's like, how long is this happening? 
And the father says, since childhood, it has sought nothing but the destruction of my son. And I love this interchange. Verses 22 through 27. The father says, it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on me. Help me, Jesus. Have compassion on my son. And Jesus said to him, if I can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And I love the word there. Immediately, almost as if kicked in the gut by Jesus himself, the father bleeds out, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus saw the crowd coming. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And then you see your son, after crying out, convulsing terribly, the demon came out and the boy was like a corpse. So the father and most of the people said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand. Jesus lifted him up. And he arose. You see, the father cried with every fiber of his being, with the only shred of self-respect he had left, pleaded with Jesus to be gracious to his son. He yielded all of his hope to this Jewish carpenter, and Jesus delivered. And Jesus worked. You see, when Jesus came from the mountain, he was confronted with an evil spirit, and he was confronted with a faithless generation. But by the hands and compassion of Jesus, he healed the boy and he restored the faith. Because that's what Jesus does. And I love the, the raw intimacy of the Father here. Man, what feeble, frail faith, isn't it? But at the same hand, what human faith? I want this faith. I want this faith that, that it sees something that can't be done. And we doubt it. Why? Because no one does what Jesus does. No one heals this boy. Not the doctors, not the disciples, not time. We should doubt it. Jesus isn't normal. He doesn't do normal people things. And so this father, as normal, sees Jesus and he sees someone who does miracles and he sees a great preacher and he sees someone who's different. But he says, if you can, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. You see, the best faith is often a weak faith. Broken and feeble at the understanding that this faith this Jesus is not only all we have, it's all we need. You see, that faith wasn't the last straw of the Father. That faith was the ship holding the Father above the waves. That faith ought to be your faith. You see, that feeble faith is a faith that cries out to God in salvation, trusting that Jesus will do what no one else has done in your heart. 
This faith is a faith that cries out for Christ's touch in resisting sin, no matter how wonderful and attractive it looks, and trusting what seems untrustable, that what is written in a book, that what is unseen, that is eternal, is better than the worldly riches we've seen here on earth. It's that feebleness of faith that can shake the bonds of depression. It's that Christ who can calm our anxiety. It's that Christ who is sufficient for me and my family. It's on the weak knees of that Father that we can choose to resist sin when everything else seems impossible. Why? Because true faith recognizes the need for Christ's power, not your own. It recognizes that Christ is the authority and that Christ is God and that we are not. You see, the posture of a Christian is that of mere faith in a perfect Christ. Are you willing to be weak? Are you willing, like this father, to put everything you have on the shoulders of Christ and know Christ has come to do work? Even when it looks like your son is dead, will you trust Christ is laboring for your good? Will you join with the psalmist and rather than just reading who Jesus is, will you taste by a faith-driven life, will you taste and see that the Lord is good? The only thing which will strengthen your faith is Christ himself, so you need to live in Christ You need to pray with Christ. You need to encounter Christ through his word. You need to pray for Christ to work on your life through preaching and devotion and discipleship. And praise be to God the Father that he comes to those who are oppressed. He comes to those who are weak and faithless and he has compassion on them out of the desire of his heart. But that's not all Jesus came to do. He didn't just come in this specific instance to restore the faith of this father and heal this boy. Christ has compassion on the oppressed and faithless by calling them to the cross. Look at what happens immediately after this story. Verse 30 and 32. They went on from there and they passed through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. It's kind of an odd appendage, isn't it, to everything that's going on? So far in the book of Mark, there have been three times where Jesus predicts his death. This is the last one before the disciples see it with their own eyes. This is the last time they hear of the cross before they hear Christ crying out, from the cross. But why did Jesus leave so fast? I mean, we saw in that story that when the crowd started to come, Jesus stopped asking questions and he started working. Why did Jesus book it out of there? You see, Jesus wanted to leave because in addition to the miracle, he's been telling them that he is going to be delivered in the hands of evil men, that he is going to be killed, and after three days, he's going to rise again. Now just stop. (laughs) Didn't we just see a story of a boy who was delivered into the hands of the evil one, who at the hands of the evil one was left as if dead, and then by the hand of God himself was raised back to life? You see, Jesus wanted to get out of here because at this point, he doesn't want to be known. In Mark, Jesus is always putting off understanding because the only way to understand Christ fully is on the cross. 
And so he's pushing off that understanding until the cross. And he wants to leave because what just happened mirrored the gospel. You see, on the cross, Jesus showed his full power. On the cross, Jesus died so that the oppression might not be lifted in individuals, but the oppression might be lifted for all who call on the Father to believe. The shackles of Satan falling off, the oppression of the evil one and unbelief being delivered by the blood of Christ. You see, on the cross, we don't see a vague picture of salvation. On the cross, we see the specific object of our faith and seeing that Jesus and hearing of his resurrection and feeling his spirit. We then, in faith and confidence, cast all we have on that Jesus in faith and in truth. You see, through the cross, we have the object of faith and through the cross, we have the freedom of Christ. What we just saw was the gospel in action. What this story presented on a small level, the gospel presents on a global one. You see, the good news of the whole gospel is that Jesus has compassion on the oppressed and the faithless, and he calls them to himself through the cross. The greatest compassion Jesus had was the passion of Jesus. That's for all people, everywhere. Jesus could have gone about in that region and cast out demons and healed the sick in every person in that, re- that area, but he is more compassionate by going to the cross and dying for the sins of all people. But here's the point of application tonight. So in this story, we have a boy and his father. Why didn't the boy come to Jesus? He's the one with the demon. Why didn't the boy Go to Jesus. Why did the father have to take him? Look at Mark 9, verse 20. This might be one reason. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, fell on the ground, rolling about, foaming at the mouth. You see, the boy wouldn't go to Jesus because the boy's demon wouldn't let him go to Jesus. It wouldn't. Even when he saw Jesus and his, the demon knew his hours were, were, were waning, he dropped to the ground. Jesus had to come to him. The boy wouldn't go to Jesus. And even if he did get to Jesus, do you see what the father said? 9.17. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. So even if this boy was brought into the presence of Jesus, this boy would not cry out for help. That's the level of spiritual oppression this boy had. The boy is mute, and mute boys under oppression do not cry out to Jesus. So his father cried out for him. And not only did the father cry out, the father brought him Jesus. You see, in this text, you see the beautiful integration of Jesus' delight and the father's plea. The father spoke, and Jesus came And in one sense, this story illustrates something specific. Don't lose fact of the specific story, the specific miracle that really happened and brought joy and belief to an entire group of people. A boy healed miraculously from an evil, oppressive spirit. A father brought to faith by the deliverance of his only son. But on the other hand, the story speaks at a more broad level. For those of us who are dead in sin, you will not cry out to Jesus. For those of you who are under the oppression of unbelief, you will not go to Jesus. Paul says this in Romans. Romans 8, 7 through 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's law. 
Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see, if they will not come to Jesus on our own, it's our job as the church to bring Jesus to them. Jesus goes to people for salvation. Jesus did not stand at a distance and wait for humanity to cry out for him. Jesus entered into their midst. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus bore their sin. And you have that message and you see that need and you know that oppression. So we ought to bring that Christ to those who are oppressed. We ought to, with the feeble hope of the Father, look at those who have not and say, I know what can fix you. And with feeble faith, we could even say, with weak and trembling knees, never has my friend been interested in the gospel. My grandpa's been not a Christian for 80 years. What can change that? Jesus changes that. Time, beliefs, systems, cultures, they have no power to Jesus because Jesus is Lord over the oppressed. Jesus is the freer of captives. And being so driven by the love this father had for his child, we take that message And we preach the one who can save. And we pray and we bring them and we hope and we labor for Christ to save people like he saved us. We pray that Christ enlivens their heart like he's enlivened our heart. And we trust, not in our proclamation, not in our power, but in the mercy of God that he meets us at the oppression. And he delivers us through the cross. And we do so with wonderfully frail faith knowing the limits of humanity, but the storehouses of God's grace. This task is monumental, isn't it? The task Jesus commissioned his church to do is huge. People being brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, eternal suffering to eternal glory. Who can do that? Who can accomplish that? Jesus can. And that's what you have. And so we knowing the glory of God and salvation, labor, knowing that through Christ the impossible is made real. Anything is possible for those who believe is not go fly around on a mountain on a magic carpet. Anything is possible for those who believe says salvation of those who are terminally dead is possible. And if that's possible, everything else is trivial. It's made possible not by the power of man, but by the grace of Christ. And we trust that because Jesus has compassion on us, he'll have compassion on others. And we go and we preach and we labor and we fight sin and we love Jesus and we have faith that he will bring us through because he's compassionate to the oppressed and faithless by calling and pointing us to his cross. Let's pray. Lord, in this room tonight, there are people who are oppressed in unbelief. In this room tonight, there are people who are faithless. There are people who are skeptical. There are people who are God-fearing, Jesus-loving Christians who, who are weak in their fight against sin, who are weak in their quest for evangelism, who are weak in becoming like Christ because it's hard But Lord, give us the faith to cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. Point our eyes to the cross of Jesus Christ where all of our belief is secured by seeing the person and the passion of Christ made real for the whole of us. Draw us to yourself, Lord. We thank you 
that you have had compassion. We thank you that you are able and we thank you that it is your delight to answer the plea of those who cry out to you and to grant them salvation and eternal life through your blood. We pray this in your name. Amen.